Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Almost 130,000 Americans die of stroke every year. That's one person every four minutes. According to the Centers for Disease Control, Control sto- strokes are a leading cause of serious long-term disability. So what can you do to prevent strokes? And once you have one, are there signs that can help to know what's happening? Are strokes reversible? Well, we've got a panel of experts here in the studio today. We have Dr. Matt Koenig. He is a neurologist and expert in telemedicine and the medical diagnosis of strokes. And we also have Dr. Sung Lee. He's the medical director of neurointerventional surgery. We also have on the line Amy Shipley, who's over in the Hilo area, and she works as a speech pathologist. And we're going to talk a little bit today about what it means, what are the signs of a stroke, what should you do if you think you're having one, and what is the latest in treatment, because it's not just what it used to be even just a couple of years ago. Now, to start us off, we're going to start, we're going to start talking with Amy. Amy, you're over there in the Hilo area. And you've seen a lot of things go on with people who have had strokes. And you're coming at this from the perspective of speech pathology. Is that right? That's correct. Um, I have the pleasure of working with stroke survivors from as soon as the day of their stroke until months and sometimes even years after recovery. Now, I bet you've seen some fairly amazing things from day one of a stroke to how someone can recover. And I want to start off with that inspirational message, because a lot of times people feel like, oh, okay, I'm having a stroke. That's it. I can never do anything about it. Yet you've seen a lot of folks who have recovered. And I know you have some amazing stories of people who transformed, really, from their initial diagnosis to how they are when you see them now. Yeah, it's true. Um, You know, one thing that I see consistently is general inconsistencies in recovery. Um, And what I mean by that is that stroke recovery looks different um, with every single person. Um, Some people make leaps and strides from one day to the next, and some people continue to make gains in their recovery years after they have their stroke. And I think that's one thing that's really important for family, people who have strokes, to remember. in, in Hilo, we do have the pleasure of um, really seeing people through the recovery with a stroke support group that I facilitate, and I continue to see people struggle with issues, um, difficulty reading, um, having a hard time filling out a form um, years after their stroke, but what I also notice is that people tend to compensate for any difficulties and with support from families and any services we can provide, people do make huge gains. Do you have anyone in mind that you can recall has really done fantastic in the last year or so? Yeah. Um, there's one gentleman who had a very serious hemorrhagic stroke. Um, so he had a bleed in his brain. He lost a lot of function with language. Of course, that's someone that I get to work with very closely as a speech therapist. Um, when I initially saw him, he was unable to formulate sentences, and he continued to just say the same word over and over again, the word coconut. Um, so that wasn't very functional, um, but he understood what he heard. And so through lots of therapy and through his family support, he went from being able to only say that one word, <laughs> coconut, to actually being really successful with communication. And today he is um, educating a lot of different stroke survivors, and he's sort of doing therapy through advocacy. Um, and he's communicating fully with lots of different words and phrases. Um, that's one specific story. Um, but there's a lot, of, a lot of different recoveries and a lot of people that have made huge gains. 
So how long did it take this? I know the stroke recovery for each person is individualized. And, you know, a lot of times if somebody doesn't get better in the first six weeks or even six months, there's sort of a sense that maybe they will not see as many gains as you would hope. On average, how how long do you continue to see recovery for a lot of your folks? Should they not give up hope if it's been a year or so? Yeah, they should not give up hope. Um, it should continue to work. Um, I think that what resources are available will look different um, based on how long ago their stroke was. Um, but I think that it's important to to remember that each case is different. We do have, through medical research, some sort of norm. Um, we know that the rate of healing of our brain cells is very rapid for the first three to four months after the stroke. At that time, families and patients will usually see some, some pretty big gains with or without therapy. But we also know with um, active therapy, family support, things like that, recovery can continue for um, sometimes years after the onset. So hope is an important prognostic variable, having hope and being motivated and having family support. From what I've seen, those things are huge. They're invaluable. Now, for the folks that you see, you said you often see them the first day they have a stroke. So you may see them in the hospital, but you also keep touch with them in the clinic as well, sort of in an outpatient physical therapy setting? Yeah, um, mostly what I do is I work in acute care. So my work right now with stroke survivors is primarily in the hospital when they have just had the stroke. And I usually evaluate their swallowing ability, and sometimes I'll have time to evaluate their language and cognition. And at that time, I can make some recommendations for um, ongoing therapy. I work very closely with physical therapists and occupational therapists. Their focus is more about um, activities of daily living, functional mobility, and together we sort of make up the rehab team. We work closely with nurses and physicians to make sure that patients get what they need um, in terms of their rehabilitation. Um, After a a stay in the acute care hospital, once patients are medically stable, oftentimes they'll then be discharged to other facilities for more rehabilitation, and then sometimes they can continue therapy as outpatient, sometimes even get services via home health, and then, of course, hopefully come to our stroke support group at Hilo Medical Center. And that's really where I get to sort of informally work with and see a lot of patients sometimes years after the onset of their stroke. Well, and it's really great to know that, particularly for our neighbor islands, because I think a lot of times on Oahu, we have some of these services that we think are so readily available. And yet for our neighbor islands, people are not as familiar with what out there is something that can help them with support groups or with survivorship. So it's really great to know that Hilo is one of those locations where you have a very healthy survivorship and and mentorship program with your stroke survivor, who's actually now an advocate for other people as well. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah, we're, we're very lucky over here. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your information about the program. And speaking of Hilo, you know, we have Dr. Matt Koenig and we have Dr. Dr. Sung Lee. Uh, Dr. Matt, you were on a couple of years ago and we were talking about this really unique program that you have with Hilo, with North Hawaii Community Hospital. And it has to do with the the idea of telehealth, meaning if someone is there on the neighbor island and they have a sudden medical issue, there are ways that the emergency room can communicate to people at Queens Medical Center to find out if that individual needs urgent care for their stroke and what type of care that might be needed. So that's a program that you really spearheaded and got started on some of the neighbor islands. Remind me a little more about how that works. 
Thanks, Kathy. So uh, what you're talking about is, is called telemedicine, or we sometimes use the term telehealth. Those are sort of interchangeable terms. And I think when I was on the show a couple of years ago, we were really just starting to ramp up that project. And so right now, what we're able to do is connect to seven hospitals in the state um, using telemedicine equipment. And, and basically, that's video teleconferencing equipment that allows real-time face-to-face uh, -face consultation between a patient and a physician who are separated by distance. So face-to-face -face is a really important point, particularly when we're talking about strokes, because one of the signs of a stroke can be changes in the face, in the speech, et cetera. How important is it for, for your, you to be able to see that in an individual without, you know, hundreds of miles away? It's huge. I mean, nothing replaces being present at the bedside in person. Um, but we don't have 10 of you. We haven't yet figured out how to clone you. So that video monitor really does, that's, that's the best we can do at the moment, right? Right. I mean, the physical exam is really key to being able to know how best to treat a stroke patient. Because really the difference between um, looking at uh, minor stroke symptoms that are going to get better on their own and, and seeing symptoms that really require treatment, um, and, and some of those treatments have risks, um, it, the difference in, in making that decision is figuring out how severe and disabling the potential deficits are that the patient's having. And, you know, other than experiencing those deficits yourself, the best way of doing that is, is being able to do a physical examination in person. So let's talk a little bit about the basics. Uh, Dr. Sung Lee, if somebody thinks they're having a stroke, what are some of the symptoms that they really should key into, pay attention to, if you're experiencing, you know, the following three symptoms, you really need to consider this could be a serious neurologic event. What are those symptoms? Well, first of all, thank you so very much for letting us uh, be involved oh, in this important topic. Um, we have an acronym uh, called FAST where you think about facial droop, arm weakness, speech changes, and that would be FAS, and the T is time to call 911. So really you want to not delay if there's any of these symptoms that are identified or or if you're experiencing that you should be calling 911 at that moment. So if you wake up in the morning and you go, you know, my arm just doesn't feel it feels weak. I drop all the I'm dropping my coffee mug because I can't hold it. And you notice that your face looks a little funny even if you don't know when it started, call 911. This is serious. That is very serious. And oftentimes our patients give this it, it happens quite often the story that we get is that, oh, I have this weird feeling in my arm. I'm going to go sleep it off. And by the time <laughs> I've they, heard that so many and, times. And uh, we've had tragic, tragic history of, of individuals coming delayed to the hospital and not being able to get that treatment. And for every minute that, that, that brain, and stroke really is a blockage of an artery that supplies oxygen to the brain or potentially bleeding into the brain. So you have, there's a differentiation that we can determine in the hospital in the ED setting with imaging. But for every moment that, that artery is blocked, millions of brain cells are dying. And so really time is of the essence. So let's talk about that basic difference, bleeding strokes versus clotting strokes. Dr. Matt, for the individual who wakes up in the morning, are they going to be able to tell the difference between a bleeding stroke or a clotting stroke? Not really. And, and, and honestly, even as a neurologist examining the patient at the bedside, it's often difficult to figure out what's a blockage of blood flow to the brain and, you know, causing a lack of oxygen to the brain. That's what we call stroke versus bleeding into the brain. Um, 
And you actually need a CAT scan in a lot of cases to determine that. So if if a neurologist needs a CAT scan, then an individual at home is not going to be able to determine the difference. They should seek medical attention immediately. That's right. Now, some of the, the treatments for stroke. So if you're, let's just say, you know, somebody's at home and they think they're having a stroke and they don't know what type it is, should they should they call 911 and go take an aspirin? Is that not a good idea? Are there any home things that they can do while they're waiting for an ambulance, which is hopefully on its way? At this point, we just recommend calling 911. We don't, don't recommend. Don't take any extra medicine. That's right. Okay. Because it could be that bleeding stroke, in which case you took aspirin, you might have made it worse. Yeah, I think people sometimes get confused about the difference between a heart attack and a stroke. A heart attack is a blockage of blood flow to the heart, and it causes chest pain. Um, and in that case, we do recommend that people take aspirin, that people take four baby aspirin and chew them up uh, if that's available. Don't delay medical attention, but if you're having chest pain and the ambulance is coming, we do recommend taking aspirin in that case. A stroke is blockage of blood flow to the brain. And it causes symptoms like Dr. Lee mentioned, sudden onset weakness of one side of the body, difficulty speaking, can be vision loss, um, can be trouble with balance. The key is that it comes on suddenly over minutes. Um, And in that case, we don't recommend that aspirin is taken because of that issue. We can't tell bleeding strokes from strokes caused by blockage of blood flow. Absolutely. Now, when someone gets to the emergency room, there is now a stroke coalition that really is trying to determine stroke systems of care. Does the does the person get to the right location at the right time for the symptoms they have? What exactly does that mean behind the scenes? For a patient who calls 911, they might be taken to a different medical center than they expect because of this very principle of let's make sure you go to the center that can best handle your stroke. What exactly does that mean? Well, I mean, thanks for bringing that topic up. It's a really important topic. And and the problem is that despite what Dr. Lee and I just mentioned and you mentioned about the importance of calling 911, the reality is that only half of patients with strokes come in through emergency medical services and half of them come in through private vehicle. And that's a big problem because you, even though the hospital down the street uh, may be your, your local hospital, they may not be capable of taking care of stroke patients. And and a good example of that is a critical access hospital that does not have a CT scanner, right? So a hospital without a CT scanner can't do emergency treatment of stroke. And so you may not know that the nearest hospital doesn't have a CAT scanner. Um, and so what we do as a system of care, what that refers to is a collaboration between all the hospitals in the state and emergency medical services and government um, and other organizations like the American Heart Association And so we get together and we actually look at um, data like um, how many patients arrive by the emergency room, how many patients are treated with the clot buster medication, how quickly are they treated, how do patients do. And we look at that data at all the hospitals and we work together um, as an organization to figure out how can we best collaborate to make sure that if a patient does call 911, that that patient will only be taken to hospitals that are capable of treating stroke. And in that sort of a collaboration, it is not so much about competition, different hospitals who where your primary care doctor works. It's really more about what is the most appropriate in the emergency room setting for that individual at that time with those symptoms. That's right. So if your doc works, you know, at Straub like I do and you're taken to Queens, there is a reason for that. If, if I work at Straub and you're taken to Polymomy, there's a reason. And that that's all developed sort of 
without having to worry about who owns what. It's really based on patient-focused care. Right. And this is important because those patients that don't call 911, those patients who come in Get in, in their by- car, which we are not advocating. Do not get in your car if you think you're having a stroke. Okay. Right. But I mean, and most people who are weak on one side of their body, they don't try to drive. I mean, there no, are some people who do. They, they like get, you know, somebody else to drive them. That's right. They get somebody else to drive them. And that usually involves waiting. So, so in general, you know, the, the tragic story that we hear very often is, I recognized that I was having stroke symptoms, but I didn't want to call 911. And there are, you know, some reasons when you ask patients, why did you not want to call 911? But they say, I didn't want to call 911, so I waited for my son to come home from work or my daughter to come home from work, and she drove me to Queens where I've heard that the stroke care is very good, and that's where I wanted to go. Uh, The problem with that is in waiting for your son or daughter to come home from work, then you actually lost several hours and you lapse out of the treatment window because the treatment window is very short. And we hear that story all the time. And so regardless of what center you go to, if it's been 12 hours since you started symptoms, your care is probably going to be very similar because the stuff that they could do if you came in within one or two hours, it's just you can't anymore. That's exactly right. All right. Dr. Lee, what are those time windows? Yeah. So in 1996, the FDA approved a thrombolytic medication called TPA. It's basically a medicine you can give through the IV. It's a clot buster for people who have acute ischemic strokes, so the stroke types that have blocked arteries. And so we know that that has been efficacious. Within the, initially, in the first trials were within three hours. But with the newer studies that have come out, we've extended the window to four and a half hours, which is great uh, to be able to treat individuals with medications. And even for these other hospitals that are part of this uh, stroke coalition where we are getting EMS to triage and to ca- take uh, patients to hospitals that we can give IVTPA. Now, we also now in the last year through the FDA have uh, new evidence for grade 1 level A, uh, grade A level 1 evidence for mechanical thrombectomy. And this is the work that I collaborate with uh, another doctor, Dr. Felix Song, who's at Straub. And uh, we take care of the stroke patients within the state of Hawaii from a mechanical uh, thrombectomy standpoint, where the window for treatment uh, in these trials that have said uh, that this is beneficial is about six hours. Some individuals, we can go a little bit beyond that. But the evidence is so overwhelming now that if we can get the right uh, uh, doctors to be able to evaluate the patient, that they have the proper imaging, then we can identify individuals that we can actually remove the clot uh, from the blocked artery that we can help them uh, uh, gain recovery. And about one in four and one in five patients who receive this therapy will be majorly uh, helped. Uh, uh, And so there are obviously some individuals, it's like us holding our breath underwater. Sometimes uh, some brain cells will not recover once they die. But there are individuals who have blocked arteries that the brain kind of goes into a sleeping state uh, and when you uh, uh, open up that clogged artery, you're able to uh, help them dramatically. And so that's where the systems of care really uh, comes in. And this is where we look up to doctors like Dr. Matt Koenig and the systems that he's developed, not only from a stroke co- coalition standpoint, but also from the telestroke network, where he's working with neighboring island uh, with uh, the different hospitals to make sure, number one, can we make sure we are evaluating them properly? Uh, doing the proper imaging, giving them the medication if they can receive it. And then for those that are still within window that uh, would benefit to be able to get them to the proper centers that can provide this service. 
It's a whole new world of strokes. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Matt Koenig and Dr. Sung Lee. And we are talking today about strokes. What are the symptoms? What should you do if you think you're having one? And what are the latest opportunities for treatment? If you or a loved one ever had a stroke, you can always join us right after our break at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. I really like Hawaii Public Radio. I listen to both stations because I feel enriched every time I listen, and I feel like it's never a waste of time. There's always something useful. Uh, Sometimes I'll find that when the reception is going out, when I'm on the North Shore, I'll turn on the side of the road and stop driving and just listen because the program is so useful. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. The next stage of the global economy is already upon us, everybody. India is growing rapidly. The smog cloud from China already comes all the way here into the West Coast. So it's upon us now, and it's going to be increasingly so in the next decade. I'm Kai Rizdal, the brave new world of India, China, and the United States in the global economy, next time on Marketplace. This evening at 6, right after The Body Show. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ulupono Initiative, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, here with Dr. Matt Koenig and Dr. Sung Lee. They are both stroke experts. They are at Queens Medical Center. And if you have a stroke, you want one of these guys on your team. Uh, right, right before the break, we were talking about what the latest is in treatment. And, you know, my mother back in, boy, 2008 had a subtherapeutic INR. It's always bad when You know, there's doctors in the family and your parents have medical problems. And, you know, her INR wasn't high enough. She was out in California visiting someone, knew she had a stroke, got to the hospital in the TPA window, and it still didn't work because it was for a variety of reasons. So she's now half paralyzed. And, you know, it's one of those things where luckily she got to a medical center and survived. However, in certain situations, TPA now is not all that happens. If she were to have this problem and go to the emergency room where you're at, now it might be treated differently. How would that be the case? In some people, if you get the clot buster, can you still have the cath lab try and get the clot out? Is that still a possibility? Dr. Lee? Actually, it is. Um, We know that not every patient who gets IVTPA, the medication is going to work because of the volume of clot that they may have. Uh, and so in those scenarios, again, if they have what's called large vessel occlusions, that's like the carotid artery, which is the main trunk, uh, the artery that supplies the brain, something like that, or the middle super artery, uh, then we're able to use these small catheters or tubes with special wires under using x-ray guidance to place it into the artery and uh, using new devices, uh, what's called strength, uh, stent retrievers, to actually uh, pull the clot out of the artery uh, physically. And that restores the blood flow. That restores the blood flow. And we've seen patients who have, in that same scenario, either uh, despite their medications, they have large volume of clot in their heart from atrial fibrillation. They have a clot that goes in the brain causing weakness. They can't speak. They get the IVTPA. But despite that, the artery is still uh, clogged up. And so we 
take the patient to the angio suite and physically pull the clot out, and we have seen individuals do very well from that. Does that work for everyone? It does not work for everyone because, again, uh, everyone will have different what's called collateral blood supply. So the brain uh, the, the has bul- multiple different branches of the arteries going, supplying uh, art, uh, oxygen to the brain. And sometimes uh, when the main trunk or the main branch gets occluded, sometimes the brain can kind of go to sleep with certain uh, with a small amount of injury. As long as you can open up that artery, that injury will be very small, whereas other individuals, uh, uh, even a short amount of time can cause severe uh, brain injury that even if you were able to open up the artery quickly, um, there will be sustained injury that will be quite devastating. We, when we look at the research, we know that mechanical thrombectomy, about one in five and one in four patients will have dramatic improvement from that therapy. So that's still a large percentage of people that you can uh, help uh, improve their uh, quality of life. Imagine stroke is still the number one cause of disability in the U.S. and in the world. In Hawaii, it's the, th- it's the third leading cause of death. In the U.S., it's the fifth large uh, leading cause of death. There's a little disparity in, in Hawaii. And one of our colleagues, Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa, is looking into that area of why there's that disparity. But we, we have this potential therapy with IVTPA and with mechanical thrombectomy to help still a large, significant number of individuals from having major disability that could potentially put them in uh, a nursing home or chronic uh, care uh, situation. So in order to take advantage of any of this technology, if you think you're having a stroke, You've got to go to the emergency room. You must call 911. Don't sit and wait until, you know, your son or daughter comes home. Don't have somebody you know, a friend, drive you to a hospital. You've got to take care of this because you'll miss out on all of these potential therapeutic interventions if it's been out of now, like, what, a six-hour window. And why is it that we have those windows? Is there a reason why if somebody came in in three days, we couldn't do the same type of treatments? That's a very good question. In terms of uh, the longer someone has a blocked artery, there's more brain injury. And so then at, at some point when you unclog an artery, there's risk for that uh, reperfusion of blood going into that injured brain to cause actually more injury. So we have to balance at what point is it going to be beneficial versus at what point could it be more harmful or no benefit. And all you're doing is just a procedure on an individual. Gotcha. And so really, you don't want to put someone through a risk of doing a procedure if there really isn't any chance that it's going to help them exactly. therapeutically. Exactly. And it's it's not that, you know, you're a bad person, you didn't come in in the first 24 hours. It's just that we know that the risk of potential serious harm is so much greater than any potential benefit. It's just not going to help you. It's that do no harm principle. Exactly. Our goal is to take care of our patients And if we know that we can help them if they come in an early time window, then we're going to do our best to provide that care. But also we're not going to endanger them by doing a procedure that is going to be of no benefit to them. Absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. Okay. We've got a couple of callers on the line. We have Keith on the line from Kailua. Keith, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Hello there. What can we do for you? Okay. Last year, um, my wife had a hemorrhagic stroke, but we didn't recognize it right away because, um, you know, we'd heard the conventional things to look for, such as changes in her face, um, ability to move her limbs, uh, speech changes and things. But the only thing that um, presented was that uh, she lost about a quarter of her vision. 
And since that's not spoken about, we didn't recognize it. And, you know, we I even took her blood pressure, but um, we ultimately waited just under a full day before going in. But it turned out to be, you know, a hemorrhagic stroke, so there wouldn't have been, you know, the, medicine, the clot-busting medicine obviously wouldn't have been appropriate, but still um, we were completely unaware that that was something that, you know, we should be on the lookout for. Well, that's a really good point. She, she she turned out to have a, a, a cavernoma, which you know can lead to these kind of bleeds, and um, I guess it's more of a, a, a developing area, I guess, with some specialists. But she had that uh, surgically removed at the beginning part of this year because there was the threat of you know potential further bleeds. Well, you bring up a really good point, Keith, and that is visual symptoms. Dr. Matt, you're right. We often don't say visual symptoms. I've actually had I had this wonderful gentleman in his 80s who went to the emergency room because he hit his face on a pole. And they did sutures, and they did a great job of taking care of him. And, and he came into my office, and I said, well, why did you hit the pole? He said, I didn't see it. And I noticed that he actually had lost his vision in this whole side of his face. And I went... Well, that makes sense. That's why you hit the pole. It was obviously out of a window where he could do anything about it. But we often don't think of visual symptoms. Is there any difference between when you have a hemorrhagic stroke versus a clot stroke in the potential to have visual symptoms? Because Keith's right. I often don't mention visual symptoms, loss of vision, as a sign that someone's having a stroke. And I guess it's because we focus so much on the other symptoms that are a lot more common. Where does vision play a role here? So it's a really good point, and 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 Kathy, you kind of beat me to the punch, um, sort of telling the story that you just told about uh, your patient, um, because the the problem with the vision symptoms is that uh, people don't notice blind spots in their vision. Now, if you had what we call positive symptoms, where there were flashing lights um, or an unusual color to the vision as as a result of stroke, then you would immediately report that, right? You go to the doctor and seek medical attention. But the, the, the difficult part is the negative symptoms, meaning the absence of vision in part of the visual field is really not recognized by people. And, and so I've seen several patients who present because of car crashes where they sideswipe um, like the jersey wall or they, they hit a car that's merging um, because of a, of a blind spot either in the left or, or right peripheral vision. And, and they so, just don't realize it. And you just don't even, I mean, it, literally half the visual field is gone and, and the person has no recognition that they've lost that half of the visual field. So it's very challenging in terms of public education, uh, you know, look out for blind spots because, you know, it, it's, it's actually hard for people to recognize those blind spots. It is. As you talk, I'm like rolling my eyes in my head like, how's my <laughs> peripheral vision? Can I see stuff? I see Dr. Lee. What's over here? But you're right. It's the absence of something. It's often very difficult to measure. And the I didn't see it, they came out of nowhere could really be that some speeding car came out of nowhere. It could be that they were there the whole time and you just didn't see it. So, you know, Keith's right. Visual symptoms are difficult, but often because of the absence of vision as opposed to the positive flashing you know, different things in your vision that make it seem unusual, that, that it's probably harder to distinguish and identify. And, you know, when you're having something like this, visual symptoms could be a sign of either the clot or the bleed stroke, either one? 
That's right, yeah. So so ischemic strokes uh, is the term that we use when there's a blockage of blood flow to the brain and there's death of brain tissue as a result of that blockage. And the hemorrhagic stroke is what we use to refer to bleeding into the brain and, and a permanent injury to the brain as a result of that. And either one could cause could cause visual symptoms. Really any of those stroke symptoms. And just, you know, we use the act fast mnemonic that Dr. Lee mentioned, the FAST as a memory tool. So face droop, arm weakness, speech problems, time to call 911. It's catchy and people can remember it. But the reality is that it doesn't really capture all of the symptoms that strokes can cause. You know, really strokes can cause it really depends it's like location location location. It depends on where on the brain the injury is, either bleeding or lack of blood flow. And so the five most common symptoms that a stroke can cause are uh, weakness on one side of the body, numbness on one side of the body, speech problems, and that can be slurred speech or what we call aphasia, which is a communication problem, vision changes, which is usually vision loss in the periphery, and then difficulty with balance and coordination. So those are really the top five, and that captures about probably 95% of stroke symptoms. So if you have any of those, the whole idea of acting fast is get on top of it now. Because certainly, you're right, the location, 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 you know, it's not, it's about real estate in your brain. How often have I done studies for an individual and said, hey, it looks like you've had previous strokes. They never had any symptoms. They're kind of blown away by the idea that they didn't have symptoms from these strokes. But depending on where the brain, where in the brain it is, they may not have any symptoms. But then you see them and now they have memory loss or now they have some other issue going on and you go, yeah, it looks like this isn't your first stroke. This is your third or fourth. And they never knew it because they never had the symptoms, so they never presented to the ER. It's too late to change that particular stroke, but there's plenty of things we can do to prevent the next one. We'll talk about prevention in just a few minutes. We've got Joe on the line from the Big Island. Joe, welcome to The Body Show. Yes, uh, ma'am, my name is Joe Rodriguez. I live in Pawilo, Hawaii. Uh, I'd like to mention something about the stroke that I'm in right now. I'm in the recuperation period. I've been like this for almost nine years now. Right side of my uh, right side of my body is uh, completely paralyzed, almost a hundred percent. I'm trying my best to do it, but I can't do it yet. Yeah, I don't know why. Uh, I'm wondering and have been wondering for quite some time now. I even had uh, I even had uh, Doctor Oshiro from the uh, Rehab Hospital of the Pacific on my case in the beginning and. Uh, I don't know how much headway she had made on me. I don't think there was too much because I still cannot walk yet uh, on the right side, yeah, my right side of my body, yeah. But the fact is that uh, <laughs> what happened was uh, I was out in my yard on the September the 8th uh, of 2007 at 8 o'clock at night. I was looking at the stars. And then I got this pain in my right arm, uh, not a pain, but a numbness in my right arm, uh, uh, just like needles-like. And I put it up in the air, and I shook it around, and I put it back down. I walked a couple more feet, and it didn't go away. I put it back up, and I shook it around, my arm around, I mean, and I put it back down. I walked a few more feet. By that time, I was about 200 feet from my house, uh, my living room uh, where I live in Pawilo, uh, and I decided I'm going to sit down and take a rest for a while, just look at the stars and enjoy it. No pain or nothing. No, not even, sir. Not even, doctor. 
uh, not even a clue as to what a stroke is. Not mm. even a clue. I felt this uh, cold chill coming up my right leg after about 20 minutes of lying out in the yard. By now it was almost 9 o'clock at night. I thought it was getting, you know, getting later, so it gets colder as it gets, gets later, yeah? Uh, especially in September, uh, it's almost winter. Anyway, I stood up and I fell down. I stood up again and I fell down again, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I stood up again and I fell down again. I rolled over on the ground. I said, wow, man, something is wrong with me. Doctor, I have still no idea that a stroke was setting in on me. I decided that I gotta get up the hill. I started to crawl. I crawled about three or four feet. All of a sudden, I got this pain in my head like you would never believe it's so strong, so intense, like I, I can't even describe it. It's so strong, I just was all stoned out of my mind right then and there for about three minutes until the pain started to just go away a little bit. Then I told myself, I better start getting up this hill right now, crawl as much as I can because if, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, uh, you know, when your body just gets all like uh, so, shocked. Joe, you had your all these. Gets into shock, it gets frozen and cold, and I don't want that to happen. Sure, Joe. Now tell me, you had all of this difficulty, and you finally found out you had a stroke. It's been a few years now. You've done some therapy. You've done some rehabilitation. I'm certain that you've probably shared your story with a lot of other folks who now understand what stroke symptoms are, huh? Yeah. Well. But anyway, like I say, <laughs> I finally got attention from my mom, who called 911. And by the time the ambulance came and picked me up, it was like much, almost 1 o'clock in the morning, okay? So by then, I was out, outside in the yard for over four hours, yeah? So I don't think they could do anything more for me. Anyway, after the third day, like I said, well, I was at North Hawaii Community Hospital. Uh, they took an MRI on me, and they had told me that there is more bleeding in the brain, which is normal, more swelling in the brain, again, which is what they say normal. But what was abnormal was the fact that my brain had actually shifted and separated. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm like, wow, man, that's bad news, yeah? Well, Joe, here's the best part of all of that is that, you know, and, and you describe actually some things that a lot of people experience. You were off on your own. You couldn't understand the symptoms. You didn't know exactly what was going on. By the time you got help, things had already evolved quite a bit. And, you know, Dr. Koenig, sometimes when people have bleeding in their brain, the brain does literally shift and it causes damage and you have to relieve that pressure in the brain. That can be a type of hemorrhagic stroke that can really cause these significant deficits like he's talking about. Joe, I want to thank you for sharing that story. I think it really um, is very eloquent, for one thing, and really illustrates a lot of what we're trying to get the message out. I mean, May is Stroke Awareness Month, and one of the goals – I'm happy to come every week and talk on Kathy's show, but one, one of the goals of coming specifically, specifically in May to talk about stroke is to, is to really get the word out so people are able to recognize the signs and symptoms of strokes and the need to really – uh, call 911 and get to a hospital as quickly as possible. 
no matter what. So someone like Joe, who really didn't understand it, who wound up having the bleeding in his brain, still got medical attention because it could have been a lot worse. Sounds like it. Absolutely. All right, Joe. Well, thanks for sharing your story and uh, for really helping to hit home that no matter where you are in the islands, you need to make sure that you get your mom did the right thing. She called 911. She didn't pack you in the car and start driving anywhere. She called an ambulance and recognized that you had some serious symptoms. It's amazing you're still with us, Joe, and thanks for sharing your story. I hope that helps someone else along the way as well. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and when we come back, we're going to be talking more with Dr. Matt Koenig and Dr. Sung Lee about what are the ways to identify strokes, what are the latest in treatment, and how you can learn more. There's a free community event that's coming up that uh, will really help to educate folks, kind of go over some of these stories some more so that everyone understands what's going on and how they can help one another. If you want to join us, you can at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. The Hawaii author whose novel made it to mainstream big screens has a new young adult novel, now out, and another literary slice of single parenthood due this summer. Next time on The Conversation, we'll talk with Kawi Hart Hemmings. That's tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Hawaii Symphony violinist and singer-songwriter Nancy Shoup Wu invites you to travel with her down the Rainbow Road. HPR's Atherton Studio is the site for this first public performance from her Hoku-nominated CD, May 21st at 7.30 p.m. Reserve your seats now at hprtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Matt Koenig and Dr. Sung Lee. They're both experts at Queen's Medical Center in the treatment and management of strokes. And we just got off the phone with Joe from the Big Island who was telling us his story of what it was like to have a stroke about nine years ago. And he's still suffering with the consequences from that. Now, we had a shy caller who asked a really good question. And, you know, Joe's situation was he had bleeding in his brain. And the caller wanted to know... Where does an aneurysm fit in here? You know, some people are told they have brain aneurysms. Do those always cause this bleeding in the brain, hemorrhagic stroke? Are there other causes of hemorrhagic stroke? Where does blood pressure fit in? Tell me a little more about that, Dr. Lee. Well, uh, in terms of hemorrhagic stroke as an entity, it's about 15% of all strokes. Uh, So if you imagine 85% being the blocked artery, the ischemic stroke, 15% being hemorrhagic stroke. And within hemorrhagic stroke, there are many causes. The most common cause are related to high blood pressure. So people who have uncontrolled high blood pressure with other risk factors, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, uh, may uh, contribute to them being predisposed for having bleeding into their brain. Uh, one of the first callers mentioned that his wife had what's called a cavernous malformation or a cavernoma, and that's an abnormal tangle of blood vessels. So there can be 
blood vessel-related causes for bleeding, uh, so cavernous, cavernous malformation, uh, arterial venous malformation. And aneurysms uh, are a very, uh, it's a unique subset that can cause bleeding on the brain, but it typically causes what's called subarachnoid hemorrhage. And that's basically bleeding around the brain, uh, typically, uh, and is a, has a very classic uh, presentation, which is it's the worst headache of your life. And uh, imagine someone hitting your head with a 4x4 or being hit by a Mack truck in the head. It's unmistakable, 0-60, boom, you have that headache. And so it's a, it's a very infrequent cause of, of, uh, of a hemorrhagic stroke, but it's a special subtype. But we do take care of approximately 70 patients a year at Queens Medical Center with subarachnoid hemorrhage. Usually from aneurysms. Usually from aneurysms. So it is related, but it's a slightly different type yes. of a brain problem. That's correct. Okay. And I think we really, you know, the issue with the blood pressure and the cholesterol and the diabetes, those are three very common medical conditions. And a lot of times people are reluctant to take medication for it. No, doc, I don't want to add another blood pressure pill. I can do this. I'll lower my salt. I'll work on my exercise. And even if they do those other lifestyle things, there are reasons why... We need to get your blood pressure down. And strokes is a huge reason. And it's, you know, when we think about the changes that occur in blood vessels when you have this constant high pressure, those changes may cause a hardening of the artery. It's not always reversible. I always try and tell folks, listen, let's get you on as much medicine as we need to get your blood pressure down. There's no magic medication. It's whatever one works best for you that we're going to give you. And then as you work on the diet, as you work on the exercise, as you, as you lower your salt content, we can take some of those medicines away. We can lower the dose. We can change the type of medicine. But boy, don't sit around with a high blood pressure for long. It's really just asking for trouble. It's not worth it. It really isn't. Are there other major risk factors for strokes that people, that people really need to be aware of? I read this statistic once, Dr. Matt, that said, you know, most strokes and heart attacks occur Monday morning, 8 o'clock, and it sort of made me think, when everyone's going to work, they're having strokes and heart attacks. But stress plays a huge role in this as well. And if you are constantly under stress and your body is constantly on this go, go, go mode, this constant cortisol release, these stress hormones, that can also affect you as well. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. And I think it, it, it's, it's a direct effect of stress, as you mentioned, cortisol, um, certainly, and, and also an indirect effect of stress, which is that stress elevates your blood pressure. And blood pressure really is the major, what we call modifiable risk factor. I mean, that's a risk factor that you can actually you can treat, treat and prevent a stroke by treating that risk factor. And so when, when I talk to medical students or I talk to the public about stroke, I always say that stroke is a disease of hypertension. Right, and, 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 and really, and I think I said this on your show last time I was on, is that, is that you know, really when I see a patient who's had a stroke, what's going through my mind is, you know, where, where, did we, where did this go wrong? Where did we go wrong here? Was it that blood pressure was not ever measured and the patient didn't know they had hypertension? Was it that the patient wasn't, you know, taking blood, wasn't put on blood pressure medications by their physician? Or was it the patient was started on blood pressure medications and then stop taking them on their own because of side effects. Because the vast majority of patients that I see with stroke, either one, the bleeding kind or the blockage kind, you know, there's a reason we use the same term for both. They really have a common risk factor, and that's high blood pressure. Um, and so the good news is that if you have high blood pressure, you can prevent stroke by treating the blood pressure and, get, and getting the number 
really as low as possible. 120 over 80 or under should be the target. But so the good news is that that risk factor is modifiable. And if you treat blood pressure, it very, very significantly lowers your chances of having a stroke. Well, and even in the medical world, boy, I think it was last October or November, the SPRINT trial came out. And that was a trial that looked at blood pressure control in people, uh, particularly people who were older. Because, you know, a lot of times we just sort of say, okay, grandma's 85. If her blood pressure is, you know, 160, we'll kind of let it slide because she's 85. And that trial really said don't do it because the increased rate of strokes and heart attacks in people who had uncontrolled hypertension, regardless of their age, I think there's a 40% greater mortality if you didn't control their pressure. And that's huge huge numbers. So even grandma, whose numbers are up and says, oh, it's because I'm old. Listen, maybe, but strokes happen when you're old too. So there is still a modifiable element there. Better blood pressure control is huge. Very important thing to do. Now, a lot of times people want to hear more about strokes and heart attacks and what to do and how to prevent strokes. And May is National Stroke Awareness Month. There are some unique events that are going on that are up and coming. Tell me a little bit more about those. Well, there's a bunch of events going on. A, a number of healthcare systems are putting on events, and the American Heart Association is having an event. Uh, but the one that I really want to uh, draw attention to is that Queens Medical Center is sponsoring um, a, a series of talks, actually, as part of our Speaking of Health series. Um, and I'll, yours truly, <laughs> Dr. Matt Koenig, uh, will be speaking at two Speaking of Health events in the month of May. So the first one is going to be on, May, on Wednesday, May 25th. Uh, and the second one is going to be on Friday, May 27th. And it's going to be basically the same talk. I mean, I'm going to kind of wig in a, a little bit, and there's going to be some some variations, but probably not necessary to go to both of them. But uh, they're going to be relatively similar content. But So May 25th and May 27th, which is Wednesday and Friday, between 6 and 7 p.m., and it's at Queens Medical Center in the Kamehameha Auditorium, and it's free uh, to you know all attendees. And that's really the key is if you want to learn more about your health and you really want to try and prevent having serious medical problems, a free public events where someone like yourself gives up your time in the evening to go ahead and help people understand how they cannot need to see you. I mean, essentially what you're doing, Dr. Matt, is you're trying to say, here's how you can avoid seeing me in the hospital. See me at this event and I'll tell you how not to have strokes, which it sounds like you want to put yourself out of business, but I think you kind of do. If we could just eliminate strokes as a cause of problems, there's a lot of other things you work on, telehealth included, lots of other areas of medicine you'd like to focus on if we could just eliminate something that is so modifiable with the blood pressure, with the cholesterol, with the acknowledgement, identification, all of these things. We want to, we really want to try and eliminate preventable problems causing serious medical consequences. Absolutely. I mean, the best way to treat a stroke is to not have the stroke have in the one. first place. Exactly. Exactly. Don't have one. And Dr. Lee, now when you see individuals, you're actually the guy who goes in and takes the clot out. I mean, this is, you've spent years of training time learning how to do this and bring this technology here to the islands. The worst case scenario, if you have a massive stroke and it's really going to be disabling, but you were lucky enough to get into a medical center, go to a stroke center, get checked out within the first several hours, and benefit from that, you've really been able to dramatically improve how people do. Well, again, it's just not me. It's, uh, it's a, a whole team. team. It's a whole team. And that's the beauty about uh, what Dr. Koenig, Matt Koenig, and, and the folks at Queens, as well as the Stroke Coalition, the American Heart Association, 
it is absolutely a team of people working together for that common cause, which is how do we, number one, treat people who have stroke in a timely manner, but also share the message like what we're doing today about how do we prevent strokes. So in addition to, I just want to add one more thing. You know, I have these conversations with individuals who I see in follow-up, and one of the things we talked about is these modifiable risk factors. We talk about blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, but one, one big thing that we still need to combat here in Hawaii is the, the use of nicotine, uh, cigarette smoke. That's a huge one. You're it absolutely is a, right. And, um, I, you know, I share with my patients, especially those who have aneurysms, you know, that nicotine is like fertilizer for blood vessel problems. Uh, and so not only is it bad for your lungs, your heart, but your brain. And so these are really important things that we really need to keep uh, sharing with our patients to encourage them uh, that these are things that we can change. Now, I, I know... I'm, I'm not a smoker. I can't imagine how difficult it may be for some individuals to stop. But the question is, how do we help our, our, our patients make the right decisions for their life and their lifestyle? And, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of folks who, former smokers, who have a major medical event, and all the motivation they need is based on that event. Mm-hmm. I'd hate for people to wait until they had some big stroke or heart attack or some disastrous outcome before they were able to quit smoking if that's what they needed to do or take their blood pressure medicine or control their cholesterol or control their diabetes. You're right, and it's, it's, not, it's not something that is easy to do, but then here we are hearing from Joe from the Big Island, it's also not easy to spend nine years with the right side of your body paralyzed. I've seen this. My mother's kind of mimicking Joe, right side of her body paralyzed. And, you know, she would do anything to not have that event. In her case, it was that fibrillation and blood thinner being too low. In Joe's case, he had a, a big a bleed in his brain. But those folks would do anything not to have those consequences. And so it's so hard when you see somebody who could modify something. You don't want them to wait. We really do want people to be able to change some of these risk factors and really try and help themselves. And it's really hard. You know, Dr. Matt, we talked earlier about visual symptoms. It's hard to know when you're missing something because you don't realize that you're missing it. But when you think about treating blood pressure, cholesterol, sugar, cutting, smoking, you're missing the stroke. You'll never know you missed it because you won't have it. And it's really hard to convince people with a lot of the different preventative elements because they say, yeah, well, how would I know if I'm preventing a stroke? I didn't have one. That is the whole entire point, that you didn't have one. And that's the good thing. When, when you see folks, I bet it must be really difficult to know that they could have prevented it had they done something differently. That's right. And, and I, I think the term stroke really comes from like being struck down, right? Like that it's a sudden onset event. And that's true in, in, in that the symptoms come on quite suddenly, right? And you are struck by those symptoms. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the events that really led up to you having that stroke are sudden, right? It's really an accumulated lifetime of untreated high blood pressure, potentially smoking, uh, potentially cholesterol problems, diet problems, um, sedentary lifestyle that accumulate over many, many, many years to cause the arteries to harden and plaque to build up. And, and that's what causes the stroke. And so really it's a lifetime of modifying those risk factors to prevent that sudden onset event that you don't have. Right. It's hard to measure because you never had it, but be glad you didn't. All right, we have one last caller. We have just a couple of minutes to talk with Lynn from Waikiki. Lynn, what can we do for you? Um, I just want to say my sister just had a stroke um, about 
four weeks ago. I'm sorry to and hear she, that. She presented with confusion and um, loss of um, language problems, and they thought that she was having a psychiatric issue and referred her to the psychiatrist that night, and they were actually going to put her in a hold. And then um, I guess they reevaluated her in the morning, and they realized she had a stroke and immediately put her in the ambulance and sent her to a big hospital. She lives in South Dakota. So I just wanted to uh, say that as another, you know, maybe misdiagnosis that people not, may not realize. They may be thinking people are, you know, um, taking drugs or something like that. But she definitely was missed, and it's unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear that, Lynn. And, uh, you know, sometimes even in the best of circumstances, she does the right thing. She goes to get checked out, and her symptoms are just too subtle or just not something that they recognize. You know, confusion and language issues. We, Dr. Koenig, you talked about it at the top of the show. These are potential symptoms of a stroke. You have to get these things checked out because if you don't, you can miss something. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as somebody who sees a lot of patients with potential stroke symptoms in the ER, we don't always get it right. I mean, that's the reality. Um, and the most challenging strokes that I've seen are patients who present just with confusion. And that is a syndrome that we see on for, for right-handed people on the right side of the brain, which is what we consider the non-dominant side of the brain that doesn't involve language, the back part of the right side of the brain can very often present with this agitated delirium, we call it, where patients seem like they're on drugs or they seem like they're drunk, where they're very confused and combative at times. And that's really the only detectable symptom. And I can tell you that personally, you know, I, I've I've missed strokes when they're present when they presented that way, and I, I I think a lot of a lot of people who treat stroke many many times have been burned by that. It's a difficult case. Well, and the key is that sometimes the initial scan is negative. Yeah, I think the other thing to keep in mind is you do a CAT scan, you do an MRI, you might not see it if somebody's had symptoms for only a couple of hours. You might not even find us. That's right. I mean, during that crucial time window when we're, when we're considering treatment with the clot buster medication, by definition, the, the scan is going to be negative because the stroke really hasn't happened yet. And that's, what makes, that's part of what makes it so challenging. So I'm glad we have folks like you two who really can help distinguish those subtleties in stroke management and figure out what exactly is uh, is going on. I want to thank both of you, Dr. Matt Koenig, Dr. Sungley, for spending your Monday here helping educate all of us for Stroke Awareness Month on a little bit more about what we can do to be more proactive and really help people to avoid having strokes. So thanks both of you for coming on. Thanks so much for having us. Oh, yeah. Thank you so very much. Now, Matt, I wanted to just just review again. You have this excellent lecture. It's coming up, and I just wanted to give people another opportunity to hear about it. Tell me the details when and where again. Okay, so it's it's called Speaking of Health, and uh, the topic of the lecture is – it's not a lecture. It's a, talk, it's a talk between me and the community. <laughs> How to Prevent and Survive a Stroke, and it's going to be Wednesday, May 25th or Friday, May 27th at Queens Medical Center, the Punchbowl campus downtown, between 6 and 7 p.m. And if people want more information, is there a number they can call? Yes, there is a number. The Queens referral line, which is 691-7117, or it's online at www.queensmedicalcenter.org backslash health-lectures. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of lectures, I'm Dr. Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show.